I would like to follow in the Bible. We're on page 773 today. And while you're finding that, just to recap, the, the heart of this whole subject is about uh, church planting. You'll get an update next week from Ellie and Josh about a church plant in hand. But we feel um, called to, or, or we are responding to, um, a bigger idea of what, what might it mean to be for G2 to be more significantly involved in resourcing church planting. Uh, so a very helpful discussion for all of us. And we've said before, um, uh, whether we are sent or we send, we're all involved in the process. So it's a relevant discussion for all of us, whether we are planning to go and do something imminently, thinking about doing something in the future, or um, uh, feel like we're permanently here, but we'll be involved in sending um, others out. Uh, and uh, if you want a title for uh, today's talk, uh, you could call it How to Plant a Church in Six Steps. Not my six steps, but six steps from the Apostle Paul. So let me read to you, and we're going to read the whole chapter. This is Acts chapter 18. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And there he met a Jew named Aquila, a native from Pontius, who'd already come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and he stayed with them, uh, because he was a tent maker, as they were, and he stayed with them and worked with them. Every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Greeks and Jews. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when the Jews opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I'm clear of my responsibility. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titus, Justus, a worshipper of God. Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard him believed and went baptised. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you and no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed with them for a year and a half teaching the word of God. And while Galileo was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him into court. This man, they charged, is persuading the people of, to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Just as Paul was about to speak, Galileo said to the Jews, If you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names in your own law, settle the matter amongst yourselves. I will not be the judge of such things. And so you have them ejected from the court. So they all turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue ruler, beat him in front of the court, but Galileo showed no concern whatever. Paul went on to, in, to stay in Corinth for some time, and then he left the brothers and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Before sailing, he had, had his hair cut off because he had taken a vow. And they arrived at Ephesus, where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. He himself went to the synagogue, and reasoned with the Jews. So we're going to look at six things today. And if you follow uh, the Apostle Paul, you read through the book of Acts and the, the numerous churches that he plants or is involved in seeing established, 
you see that he has a common pattern. That whenever he goes into a city, he either goes to the synagogue, if it's a Jewish city, or he goes to a public place for discussion to engage with people talking about Jesus. In this example in Corinth, it was uh, the synagogue. In the previous example, in the previous chapter in Athens, he went to a public statue that had the title to an unknown God. Uh, somebody, somebody uh, I read in a book said it, it's possible that that inscription kind of meant this, to God who we've heard of but never met. So in either, in either respect, that was Paul's first step in starting something new. He went to, to find people to talk to them about Jesus. And as we had maybe in our, in our examples at the table, kind of a modern equivalent of that might be saying, uh, how do you plant a church? One way, go somewhere and run an alpha course, or run something like that, whereby you can talk to people about Jesus. Uh, I had a friend who did exactly that a few years ago. He went to plant a church, and I said to him, what's your vision? And he said, Oxfam and Alpha. So he, he volunteered in a local Oxfam in the community that he wanted to reach out to, and he ran Alpha. And he secretly invited everyone he met at Oxfam to come on his Alpha. And that's how he uh, started his church. That was his way of connecting with people that he hadn't met, who didn't know about Jesus, to have an opportunity to talk about Jesus. I had another friend who planted a church, and he said, before we have any public meetings, I want to have... 50 personal conversations with people that I've not met before and I want to talk to them about Jesus. So the basis of the plant that we start is not a project but is based on talking about Jesus. Uh, I've got another friend who planted a church uh, years ago in a market town and his strategy was this. Every Saturday he hired a horse and he walked through the town with the horse. He couldn't even ride. So he didn't ride the horse. He just walked. And the horse walked along next to him. And then people would say to him, interesting, horse. Uh, why have you got a horse? And he'd say, yeah, I'm glad you asked me that. The reason I've got a horse is I've come to plant a church in the town. And then he'd invite people to come to his town. So if you want a tip, if you're thinking, how can I possibly plant the church that, that my heart is burning and longing to see established, that's the top tip from today, hire a horse. The other thing to notice in this first step where Paul goes to the synagogue is he is in effect, he's planting his church as a hobby or as a volunteer. He's uh, fallen back on his uh, kind of default trade as a rabbi. He had a trade. For him, it was, it was making tents or repairing tents. And so he's, he's just going into the synagogue for one day a week in order to talk to people about Jesus. Probably he goes to the synagogue and he stays after with whoever wants to stay and he has discussions about Jesus. He's falling on his strength, which is that he is a very well-educated, very knowledgeable about Jewish matters, and very knowledgeable about Christianity. He's up for the debate, and the debate and the discussion forms the basis of his beginning, his church. And we also find that he meets the first two team members of his church plant there. Uh, they're, they're presented in this passage to us as Aquila and Priscilla, and then from thereafter they're presented in the other order, Priscilla and then Aquila. People think that it's probably because Priscilla had the more significant ministry. So Paul goes to a city, 
finds his opportunity to talk to people about Jesus and begins to gather his first team members. So my top tip for stage one, for what Paul does, his first step in planting a church is he's got a vision. He's got a clear idea of what he's going to do. He's going to talk about Jesus. And he's also got focus. There's lots of things he could have been doing. He could have you know, been developing his website or finding that cafe. But he's focused. This is what I'm doing and this is what I will do well. If we click on to the next uh, passage that we uh, read in verse 5. Uh, the next thing that happens is two people that Paul already knows, Silas and Timothy, come to join him. Uh, he's met them already on his travels in other churches that he's been to. And they've previously worked with Paul. And this adds now two additional people to his team. And we're told the consequence is that, that Paul can now um, exclusively devote his time to preaching and talking about Jesus. So he carries on doing what he's been doing, but he was doing it for, for a day a week or maybe you know, part of one day a week only. Now he can devote all of his time to doing that. Now, we don't know exactly how that happens, but it, it, the implication is the two additional team members are resourcing Paul to be able to do that. He doesn't need to be mending tents in order to pay for his rent and his food and his costs of living. The team are working out a way to do that together so Paul can increase and maximise the amount of time that he spends doing that. And it's also interesting that uh, these two additional team members are people who've previously been involved in church planting with Paul. And there's, there's good evidence that some of the people who are most effective in planting churches are those who've already done it before. In fact, I read a, a report from Vineyard in America that was done uh, quite a while ago, but uh, had a quite striking observation that the most effective church planters were people who had planted before, and it didn't matter if the previous church plants had failed. There's something incredibly powerful about people who've been in the environment of a church plant, then moving on to the next one. And just like we've been thinking here, rather than thinking of church planting as a static thing, like it's, it's a project that is done, instead it's like an ongoing thing. It's a vision, it's a value. Uh, somebody might be involved in a church plant as a helper, then they might go to the next church plant as a leader, then they might go and uh, pioneer and, and take on the next one. It's more, of a, more, more like a movement than a project. And so if that's stage two, then my top tip, my observation from that is build a team. And the team joined the person or the, the core people who had the vision. Paul was carrying the vision. There were probably numerous valid ways in which they could have gone to Corinth to plant a church, but Paul had decided, I will go to the public place and debate and reason about Jesus. That was, that was the initial vision of his church plant. And the team that joined him, joined him to add to that vision. They joined that vision. No doubt they brought their qualities and their skills as well, but they joined the vision that had already been established for what they were doing. Step three, verse uh, seven. And uh, if, if this passage was made into a movie, then verses seven and eight would make this story a comedy story. 
I wonder if you caught that as, as, as we read through the passage. So Paul, Paul's been going to the synagogue as a visitor. He's been staying afterwards, debating and preaching to them. But then the, the people in the synagogue kick him out. So he you know, shakes his clothes and says, your blood is on your own head. And he leaves that synagogue no longer to work there. Where does he go? Corinth is an enormous city. It was the second biggest city in the province. It would have been a massive place. There would have been numerous places where Paul could have been. Where, where did God provide an open door for Paul to go? Next door. I mean, I just think in the movie, this would be absolutely hilarious. Like, he's kicked out of one door, he walks two steps the other way, and somebody opens the door and welcomes him in. Uh, uh, the guy that enters him, uh, welcomes him in, Titus, we're told is a worshipper of God. Now if you follow through Acts and look at how people are described, the phrase worshipper of God probably suggests that he was someone who was um, open to God, but, in a, but hadn't kind of nailed his colours to the mast. So he, wasn't, he isn't described as a follower of Jesus. He isn't described as someone who's been baptised. He's described simply as a worshipper of God. If you read through the whole of the book of Acts, that often is used to describe somebody who is discovering and finding out about God, but hasn't yet necessarily kind of um, got to the point where they say, yes, I'm following Jesus. So God provides an open door in Titus with um, somebody who in effect reflects the transition that Paul is making. He's transitioning from going to the synagogue where he would only have been speaking to the Jews and then God moves him just a few steps next door where he can go to this house and he's reaching now all of the people of the city because he's not just speaking to Jews but he wants to speak to all of the nationalities that are uh, um, reflected there. If that wasn't hilarious enough, who is the first person that is the fruit of this new ministry next door to the synagogue. It's Crispus, good name, Crispus, who is the synagogue leader. So the synagogue kicks him out. I mean, I'd love to know what order it happens in, but the synagogue has kicked him out. He goes next door to Titus, who's not fully yet convinced whether he's fully following God or what, but he's open. There's an open door for Paul to come in there, and then Crispus, his whole household, are baptised and they join that new church. They say in church planting that uh, there's often a battle for the first fruits, that you need to pray for the, the first person to come to faith or the first um, baptism. And Crispus and his family represented that. Do you know what? If I was leading that church plant, I'd have Crispus on the welcome team every Sunday. So when all the people in the city are like, let's go to the synagogue, right, there's nothing else to do on Saturday, because that's, you know, there's, there's nothing else happening. We'll go down to synagogue, see if there's a good debate. They're wandering up synagogue street. There's a synagogue. It's up there somewhere I went recently. And then, ah, oh, Crispus, yeah, I recognise him. He's the leader of the synagogue. Crispus is outside on welcome. He's going, hello, have you come to worship God? Brilliant. Come on in. Here. It's here. 
In you come. You know, the people that are visiting the city, they've looked at the church website, because you've all voted for the website, so that they could all find out who's that. They've all looked at the synagogue on synagogue.com, and there's a lovely picture there of Crispus, so they're not sure where they are. I think we found it, and then they see that familiar face, Crispus. Brilliant. That must be where we're going, and they head into this public meeting of this church plant. So this is the third step of Paul planting his church. And um, this is about Paul going public. At this point, what he's doing becomes a public thing that the community is aware of. And also this, this idea of the battle or the, the, um, the, the first person that comes to faith as a fruit of the church plant. Or if we click on to verse uh, 9. Then we see that uh, Paul moves from um, kind of things going well to being challenged. And in the night, Paul has a vision or a dream, and God speaks to him. And let's just unpack what God says to him. First thing he says is this, don't be afraid. Wow, the great Paul has the potential to be afraid. He needs God to come to him and say, you're probably feeling afraid. Don't be afraid. Be encouraged. I think when I talk to church leaders and I talk to church planters, I think the pressures that church planters carry is often significantly greater than people who are leading churches that are already established. Just the weight, the complexity, even though it's often smaller, there's, obviously, there's often much more weight that needs to be carried. It's more uh, precarious, it's more vulnerable. Uh, there are more things to keep that person uh, awake at night, worrying. And God speaks to Paul and says, do not be afraid. Then God encourages him, he says, keep speaking, keep running alpha, keep going to the synagogue, keep talking to people, keep going out with your horse every Saturday to see who you can meet. Keep finding, find 50 more people to have a conversation with about Jesus. Maybe you could have got tired doing it. You know, maybe it's, it's weary, it wears you down. Every Saturday, spending the whole day talking about Jesus. Maybe he's, you know, there could be other things that he wants to do. Maybe it even gets boring, or maybe it's not working. It goes through a difficult patch, and he feels like, I'm talking about Jesus. feels like I'm saying all the right things, but I'm not sure what's happening. God says to him, keep speaking. God says to him, you're safe. No one's going to attack you. If you read on, uh, years later, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians back to this church, and he actually catalogues to them the dangers that he faced in his ministry. Shipwreck, being mugged, being uh, nearly stoned twice, going without food, going without provisions. He says how he's attacked in the courts, he's attacked in the church. He, he had plenty in his experience of pioneering new things to be afraid of. So God says to him, don't be afraid. No one's going to hurt you. And then God says to him this, I have many people in this city. That's a curious thing that God said because it's, it's not so much a statement as a promise. It's not saying, God's not saying there are many people in this city going to church but you just haven't met them or you don't know about their church. He's saying, this is the God who spans time, who knows every human being in that city. And he says, Paul, you won't know this, but just, just so you know, I've got many people in this city. 
And I, look, I know often when people are church planting, often pioneers hold on to a vision. I imagine that's the kind of thing Paul would have held on to. He would have remembered those words. God has said there are many people in this city that belong to him. And that might be a promise that he needed to uh, hold on to, to not be afraid of, to not grow tired of, to not give up speaking, because it wasn't just about what he was doing, it was about God, and God has said, I've got many people in this city. And we see that Paul stays for another year and a half. And so we observe from this, that was the phase of Paul in planting was particularly hard. You could imagine that he needed that vision. He needed to hear from God because perhaps he was ready to give up. And probably like many projects and new ent- enterprises and things that we might do, probably there's a time in any, any new church getting started when it hits a challenging time and everybody feels like they'd like to give up. And they need to press through, not because of how well it feels or how happy they are, with the task, but because there are promises in hand from God that haven't yet been fulfilled. And then stage five, the next verse, verse 12, we find again Paul is facing persecution. Remember I told you this is a comedy story. And so Sosthenes is now the leader of the synagogue. Uh, we don't know who he is, we don't know if he was like the deputy that got promoted or whether uh, the, the Jewish rulers were annoyed that the synagogue leader had left the synagogue and joined Paul's church. But this is one year on, Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, is pushing for Paul to be tried in court. The Roman governor uh, doesn't want to get involved. He says, look, this is, this is just to do with... Um, this, this is just to do with the customs of your people, of the culture, of who you are. And so Sosthenes, who's trying to get Paul beaten and thrown into jail, instead the whole crowd turns on him, he gets beaten and falls out through that. And this again is the church plant has become public. Paul begins with something where he's just, he's just meeting people in private, he's just having one-to-one discussions. But this is his, the thing he's leading, the new church that he's uh, involved in has reached the point where people think it could be looked at by the city court. It's now a thing in the city that people know about. We don't know what the numbers are. We don't know what else they were doing. But the, the church plant has now got to a point where it's public. And Paul again has faced more troubles. And then lastly, at the very end of our reading in verses 18 and 19, we find that the Apostle Paul moves on. For Paul, this was a serial thing, that he would go somewhere, start a church, stay with it for a while, and then move on. And then for some, he was able to visit again, and for others, he wrote and corresponded with the church to help the church and the leaders that were there. So some church planters may stay for Paul, it was in his blood that he would stay and pioneer. And then I kind of imagine he, he was the kind of the guy that probably got itchy feet and he was ready to move on for the next thing. Um, we know he comes back again in his next missionary journey. We know that he writes uh, at least two, possibly three times uh, to this church to encourage them. Uh, we also read in there that he, he kind of 
I think, he's, I think he takes some time out to be refreshed. There's just a little throwaway uh, thing in there that he uh, has taken uh, a vow. And the vow he took was probably the Nazarite vow. And if any of you were around a few years ago, we did a whole sermon on the Nazarite vow. Do you remember that? And we shaved Tom Adair's head in the meeting, you know, just so it was memorable. And because he was willing to have his head shaved. Um, so Paul, Paul probably has taken a Nazarite vow or something like that. So he's, he's given maybe two years to planting in Corinth. He's, it's probably drained him. He's had, to, you know, he's had to deal with fear and persecution. You know, he's worried he's going to get locked up, he might get beaten up. And then he leaves, he leaves Corinth to go on to do uh, something new. He's going to go on to Ephesus. And I like to think that he took some time out to reconnect with God. And the Nazarite vow, if that's what he did, uh, would have been a, a vow of simplifying your life, of making a promise to God, and then taking everything that you've got and investing it in the promise, that you don't let go of the promise until God has fulfilled it. So I think he refreshed himself. And then lastly, we, f- we find that uh, he leaves Priscilla and Aquila, and then he, he goes to uh, Ephesus, and he ends up again in the synagogue speaking about Jesus. 